Good Sunday afternoon to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good weekend. I know I have. I hate to see it come to an end, but as I've said before, the older we get, it seems like the weekends go by fast and life in general, but that's just what it is. Anyways, it's good to be back on the air, and uh, we are still in our uh, discussion of uh, Christian de Spigna's uh, novel, Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's Lost Hero. Uh, When we were on the air last, uh, we had uh, talked about um, what was uh, going on in 1775, along with uh, Dr. Warren's, um, or should I say young Joseph Warren's uh, early years, given that he was born in uh, Roxbury, uh, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Uh, today's podcast uh, session will talk about um, his educational upbringing uh, to um, religious events that were taking place around the time he was uh, just before he was growing up and after he was uh, born uh, to his uh, formative schooling years at a prestigious uh, university that's been around for uh, many years. So um, our first uh, leadoff question is going to be the following. Uh, Before the 1760s, was violence itself part of New England society? Of course, when when I think of the 1760s, I think of the aftermath of the French and Indian War and what Parliament decided to do uh, to the colonies that uh, would cause such um, great tension and rift. That was the infamous Stamp Act, as we all know, taxation without representation. But we should be reminded that violence um, was nothing new to uh, New England society uh, before the 1760s. Well, when I say violence, what what am I uh, referring to? Well, believe it or not, in colonial times, crime itself was an issue. We may not think of crime back in the 18th century like we do uh, in today's time, but it did exist. And for those who had committed um, bad crimes that um, resulted in severe offenses, such as executions, believe it or not, executions themselves were a common practice in New England society, especially when it came to theft, murder, Sabbath breakers, to runaway slaves. Well, how could, for example, how could how could theft itself be considered um, an offense that could result in one's being put to death? Um, I can give you a good example, though. Um, I do know that uh, my wife and I, of course, we don't live far from Colonial Williamsburg, so we always enjoy um, visiting uh, that um, area, uh, given with its rich history. But we have learned uh, from docents there that um, it was one thing to have committed an act of theft the first go-around, and if you did, you obviously got branded. T represented theft, and you either got the branding in the middle of your hand or on one of your thumbs. If you didn't learn your lesson the first go-around and you stole someone's um, personal belongings, or let alone a horse, and horse theft was a big crime because if you stole someone's horse, that was basically seen as uh, taking away a man's livelihood in terms of his means of transportation. So if you had uh, committed theft again, then it was considered punishable by death because you 
for one, had not learned your lesson the first go-around, and two, you had broken um, the community's trust. So to put it in a nutshell, if you had committed a wrong, people wanted to work with you so that you didn't make your mistake the second go-around, because the second go-around would, would be far worse than the first one, and obviously the second go-around was more often than not death. So in other words, it wasn't the three strikes and you're out uh, system like we have today. But punishments besides executions also included ear cropping, and as I mentioned earlier, branding to whippings. You know, these punishments sound very uh, severe, but I think there's a reason why they are severe. It's to keep you, the perpetrator, who has uh, committed uh, an act, or an inappropriate act, it is to keep you in line and to have everyone else witness your punishment so that they know, for one, not to make the same mistakes, but two, that you as the individual who are the guilty party have let the community down as a whole. So therefore, by everyone witnessing your punishment, they have found out about what you have done. So it's not just... Um, you getting punished by, a, um, by an official above you, it, you're facing the community as a whole. Sometimes I, I wonder if that would benefit society greatly in today's time. Of course, that's a whole other subject, but those kinds of punishments back then I think were a good thing because um, people did need to be reminded from time to time of what would happen if, if, um, if for one, you broke the law, and two, what the consequences would be of, the, of your um, inappropriate actions. So uh, here's another question uh, to think about. In Dr. Warren, or I should say in young Joseph Warren's time, did slavery exist in New England before and after his birth? Uh, the answer is yes. Part of the Massachusetts economy revolved around rum, molasses, and sugar and so, therefore, you're going to need to have uh, able-bodied people to um, assist with, um, with whatever necessary tasks are involved in the transporting of those um, products to other places in colonial America but throughout the world. And it turns out that young Joseph Warren's family owned two slaves. Now, I will say this. Uh, while, yes, slavery did exist in New England, it was probably not on the same uh, level as it was in, say, the Carolinas, and Georgia, and perhaps Virginia. Uh, here's another uh, good bonus question. Did the elder Warren, a.k.a. young Joseph Warren's father, insist that Joseph and his brothers, that is, his three younger brothers, that they all receive the best education possible when it came to political thought, literature, and religion? Yes, the elder Warren wanted his four sons to be well-rounded. Okay, uh, Joseph Warren may not come from a well-to-do family in terms of having a lot of money, but the bottom line is, is that if there still is an opportunity for young Joseph and his brothers to get a good education, you better make the most of it. Otherwise, what are you going to be contributing to not just the community, but society as a whole? It should be worth pointing out that uh, just before and after Joseph Warren's birth, the period between the 1730s and the 1740s 
became known as the First Great Awakening. Now, I've uh, learned before about the Great Awakening, but this period was one in which uh, ministers challenged old doctrinal uh, practices of um, that had been taught by previous ministers who had taught uh, the opposite philosophy. Not that there was nothing wrong with it, but sometimes it's good to have a little um, challenging or what do you call it, remodification of uh, doctrinal uh, practices. So the Calvinist doctrine, from what I read in this book, uh, Founding Martyr, that doctrine had claimed God himself being the one determining all people's salvations regardless of their actions in life. So in other words, God was going to uh, see to it under Calvinist doctrine that, uh, okay, John Smith or Sally Jones are going to be going on this course in life and this is what's going to be expected of them to do. Uh, If they do anything different, it's probably not going to be for all the right reasons. So we get preachers like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield who lead the way in professing about an individual's direct relationship to God. So in other words, it's one thing for God himself to, um, to determine what course is best for a person to pursue. It really ought to be up to the individual him or herself as to how they want to have a relationship with God because if they aren't allowed to have a direct relationship with God then how can they know for sure what is the best uh, course of direction for them to take as an in, on an individual um, basis these teachings also inspired people to test or let alone question the power of imperial authority When I think of imperial authority, I think of uh, the crown, parliament. And and this is going to come into play big time come the 1760s and 1770s because imperial authority is going to dictate a lot of political and social reforms down the road. So it's these this is a what you call It's not a bad period of time. It's actually an exciting one, but one that's also going to leave the skeptics wondering, hey, what's next? You know, now that some of these original uh, doctrinal practices are being modified. But come the 1760s and 1770s, yes, a lot of people are going to start questioning the power of imperial authority. And I think it's fair to say that that the Stamp Act was probably the first big uh, piece of legislation that um, set off the firestorm, not just with taxation without representation, but just the whole concept of um, not just the proper representation, but the consent. In other words, it's one thing to say, hey, I want to, we want to introduce this legislation, but we've got to make sure that the colonists agree to it. Here's another good uh, bonus question. Did some of Boston's church elders play the role of being influential patriots? Absolutely. Joseph Warren's future pastor 
or I should say young Joseph Warren's future pastor, Dr. Samuel Cooper, would become a strong advocate and supporter of the Whig agenda. So it's one thing for, you know, a church elder to hold the position of, say, deacon in their church, or let alone be the minister, but even church elders themselves, too, would be seen as um, ardent supporters for going to war with England, or in some cases, remaining loyal to the crown. Was Joseph Warren's father someone who had a dutiful spirit of reverence for God? Uh, the answer is yes. The elder Warren had multiple volumes of religious scriptures at his home, and over time would spend upward of 10 pounds on Latin books alone for his oldest son. 10 pounds, that, that's a lot of money, but hey, it was probably also money that the elder Warren had uh, saved up for a long period of time because he wanted to go about properly investing in the right kind of um, reading material for his, not only for his oldest son, but for his youngest, younger sons as well. And I think this is something that we need to re be reminded of. First off, were there books in uh, colonial America? Yes. Now let me ask you guys this question. Did everybody have the same kind of access to books? In other words, you know, when we think of, when we go to a bookstore today, we see books big and small, medium-sized too. We can have access to any kind of book we want to read no matter how many pages it is. But in colonial America, having a book based on its size was a huge factor in determining one's financial status as well as intellectual wealth. So in other words, the larger the library in one's home, the greater the social standing or let alone ranking in community. So if you own books that are say, between 200 and 300 pages long, or, or thick for that matter, yeah, you are definitely in the upper echelon of society. Most middling families own what we call pocket-sized book, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's all about accessibility. So we got to remember, people, that we didn't have Barnes & Noble back then. You just couldn't go into a store and say, oh, I'd like to buy this 200, $300, or 200-300 page book. If that were the case, so, uh, someone, say, in the bindery shop would probably say to you, okay, how, how much do you have in terms of uh, coinage on you for that? Because we also have to be reminded, too, that if you bought a, a 300-page book that you might be using, say, for um, ledger purposes at a tavern, uh, you better have the money for it and and also take into consideration that that's also a couple of months uh, of hard-earned wages. So, um, would young Joseph Warren ultimately become one of Boston's elite sons? Yes, he would. However, being elite in this sense had nothing to do with money. But he became elite by leading the way and taking a stand against British actions and policies. So remember, folks, one can be elite, but it doesn't have to revolve around money. 
that's off, that's an, what I call um, a true misconception when we think of elite status in society, even by 18th century standards. Yes, you can be elite because you have money and land, but you can be elite in other ways, which was a good thing. And by taking a stand against British actions and policies, this um, this uh, was a, a great asset because it was very instrumental to many people in Massachusetts. And by speaking at hall, town hall assembly gatherings, uh, Joseph Warren, in many ways, would ultimately become a savior to those below whom needed someone to look up to. That's not to say that those below could look up to a minister, but they needed some other um, guiding force who could speak for those who didn't have a say in everyday affairs. They needed someone who could um, say to them, hey, I'm with you. I agree with you that taxation without representation is totally wrong. I agree with you that um, placing duties on glass, lead, tea, paper is unconstitutional or unfair especially when you don't consent, especially when you don't ask for the consent of people below who are being governed by a high um, institution that uh, does not uh, value its subjects below them. Well, here's another uh, bonus question. It seems like we have a lot of them, but they are good because without them, then how are we going to really know um, the true answers to the questions being asked? In order for a young boy to become a respected gentleman, what would he need? Well, there, there could be a variety of answers to this one. Uh, one could say he, he would need uh, to wear fine clothing. That's a, a good example, but I think there's a better answer than just wearing good clothing. A formal college education. So in 18th century times, in order for a young man to become, a young boy to become a respected gentleman, you're going to need a formal college education. So what was the nearest institution of higher learning uh, in Joseph Warren's neck of the woods? Given that he's from Roxbury, but what's the nearest uh, institution of higher learning? The answer is Harvard College. And we all should know that Harvard College is the oldest institution in, the, in America. It was founded in 1636. Does anybody want to know the second institution of higher learning that was established? It was established nearly 60 years after Harvard. It's right in Williamsburg, Virginia, not far from where I live, the College of William and Mary. So what's unique about 1751? Well, Joseph Warren is 10 years old, and his parents send him to Roxbury Latin school, and young Joseph Warren's parents are, in fact, strong advocates of education. So what I found neat about Roxbury Latin is that it was modeled after various grammar schools of Elizabethan England. In other words, you know, we, we just didn't build a school just for the heck of it. We modeled it after, um, after what schools in England looked like. In other words, people who came over from England, 
envisioned a school that would be very similar to its structure, like what they had uh, back in uh, England. Roxbury Latin would be known for its humanities and religious instructions. Religion in Massachusetts played a very key role in every aspect of colonial life. As a matter of fact, long before young Joseph Warren was born, we go back to 1642, the state of Massachusetts required towns to establish schools to teach boys how to read and write in order to better understand the laws of God and country. Now that is important because, hey, it's one thing for a child to go to school, but we need to make sure that these young boys are learning the proper... um, they're learning the proper essentials because if they're not learning the proper essentials, then how are they going to um, become well-rounded and how are they going to be considered, let alone a true gentleman in their society? So by 1645, under a charter granted by Charles I of England, Roxbury Latin School is established. So remember, folks, people just in the community just didn't say one morning, hey, we're going to build a school just for the heck of it. More often than not, schools were built as a result of having a charter granted. In other words, the town, uh, the, the local government people didn't raise the money for the school. It was through a charter. How many years did Joseph Warren attend Roxbury Latin? Okay, well, he, in 1751, he's 10 years old, and that's when he goes off to school. Well, I can tell you this much. Uh, he obviously, it was not a K through 12 school, let's put it that way. He actually spent four years there. And during this time, he was preparing for college. So remember, folks, he just wasn't going to school to get a, a typical day's education. Uh, this was um, preparing for college. We almost, it almost might be fair to say in some ways that Roxbury Latin could have been like a junior college of some sorts. Or like what we think of today as like a community college before transferring into an actual four-year collegiate institution of higher learning. So Roxbury Latin, it turns out, was a feeder institution to Harvard. Warren was mentored by uh, many uh, unique people, uh, one of them being a future U.S. Supreme Court justice named William Cushing, to teachers who would later serve as revolutionary Whigs or loyalist Tories. The bottom line is that uh, during his time at uh, Roxbury Latin, I believe it's very fair to say that young Joseph Warren got a very good education. And yes, it, it might seem hard to believe that some of the teachers that, who taught him ended up being, lo- being loyalists, but I do believe it's fair to say that for many of our forefathers who were able to uh, receive a, a good quality level of education that some of those teachers they had probably were loyalists, and then there were those who were patriots. The bottom line is, is that, of course, at this time when say young Joseph Warren is going off to school, the thought of separating from England is just not even on the table in in the period between 1751 and 1755. Um, Now, how ironic when Joseph Warren, just before he finishes at Roxbury, that it it won't be long before uh, the French and Indian War breaks out. But to think that when he was first at uh, Roxbury Latin, we're still on good terms with... um, 
with England. I mean, the, there's no thought of even wanting to separate. So uh, here's a, a very good bonus question. Did admissions to Harvard require a series of tests? Let me ask you all this. W was there such a thing as the SATs or the ACTs when Joseph Warren was alive? Uh, the answer is no. There, there were no SAT tests. However, the tests that he uh, took were mostly oral exam. These were, yes, oral exams, but that is that he had to go before a group of people and he had to, um, he had to basically, um, you know, talk with the uh, public about uh, why he wanted to uh, attend Harvard. But the exam initiation dates were posted in local newspapers. So, how many families lived in Cambridge? That's where Harvard is located at the time when J young Joseph Warren was seeking admission. I'll give you a number. It's between, it's between uh, 100 and 300. The answer is 200. And how many miles was it from Roxbury to Harvard on horseback? I'll give you that number. I'll give you a number to choose from. It was between four and ten miles. The answer is five. So think about it, people. Harvard is really, in a sense, um, not far from young Joseph Warren's um, home. Whom did young Joseph Warren stand before in trying to gain admission to Harvard? And there is a town in Massachusetts named after this man, and there is even a college named after him as well. It was none other than the president of Harvard, whose name was Edward Holyoke, whom had been at Harvard for pretty much uh, roughly two decades. He had presided over entrance exams to testing hundreds of aspiring scholars. This was somebody you did not want to underestimate. This was somebody that uh, took his role very seriously. This is someone who was willing to stick your, his neck out for you, but in order for that to happen, you had to lay everything on the line because it's fair to say that getting into Harvard in 18th century times was just as difficult as it is in today's time. Now, I don't know if they referred to it as an Ivy League institution back in 18th century, but what I do know is that um, not everybody went to college, and two, those who did go to college were often seen as um, from the upper ranks of society, but that's not to say that men like Joseph Warren, who came from middle-class society, still had the opportunity. But there again, it all came down to connections, and his parents seemed to have a lot of good connections. So, did young Joseph Warren pass all the exams? Yes, he did. And what do you know? He began his first term at Harvard around mid-August of 1755 at age 14. And he was the youngest boy in his freshman class. But as for socioeconomic standing, he ranked 31st out of 45. Well, given that he's ranked 31st out of 45, could it put him at a disadvantage? Sure. But is it going to stop him from making the most out of Harvard? Ab absolutely not. It, it, 
you know, it's one thing to be ranked at the bottom, but that's probably okay. It should be pointed out that um, that uh, someone whom he attended Harvard with at his, in his class was uh, a fellow by the last name of Trumbull. Well, it turns out that the Trumbull family is a very well-to-do family in Connecticut. As a matter of fact, this young fellow by the last name of Trumbull, his father was uh, Jonathan Trumbull, who was um, a governor of Connecticut. And I want to say he may have also uh, been an artist as well. The only reason I say that is because I know that one of the Trumbull family members was a well-known artist who had done paintings of various forefathers and of other famous events in the 18th century. So there is a place in Connecticut known as Trumbull, Connecticut, uh, named after none other than the Trumbull family. So um, here's another bonus question. What time did a typical school day begin at Harvard? The answer was about 6 a.m. And Harvard tutors would lecture young men between the hours of 8 and 12 p.m. Dinner was served in the commons hall between 1 and 3 o'clock. Remember, people, we didn't have three meals a day. You didn't have your own meal plan. Uh, you know, you didn't go to the cafeteria and expect someone to cook your meals for you. So I guess I ought to ask this question to you all. If you, if any of you men out there who are listening, if you all were alive in 1755 or even before then and attended Harvard, what would be your typical um, dinner well, it consisted mostly of roasted or boiled meats to puddings and beer. And this makes sense, too. Students brought their own knives and forks to the common hall, and the meals were served on pewter plates. So remember, folks, uh, like I said earlier, you didn't have your own meal plan. You were responsible for bringing uh, your own forks and knives. They didn't have the stuff for you. And perhaps that was a good thing because by you bringing your own utensils and bringing other um, necessities, it was a sign of showing that, hey, this was the first step towards independence. Not just independence, but by proving that, hey, as a young boy, you are also learning what it takes to become a, a gentleman. In other words, if you're going to be a gentleman, that's one thing, but you've also got to be able to demonstrate independence. You can't have people around you, others around you, from above and below doing everything for you. And it turns out that many of the students would supplement their meals by hunting and fishing. So in other words, okay, your dinner might consist of roasted or boiled meats, but if you want something else, it's not like you could just go up to, um, to the chef there and say, hey, can you uh, go to the store and, and get this other food for us? No. If you want something else to eat, you're going to have to go out into the woods and hunt a deer or go fish in the pond. Now, in the mid-1700s, or I should say the mid-18th century, Harvard really is a small college. It consists of four brick buildings, a chapel, and less than 10 faculty members. <laughs> Think about it, people. Um, every, all the young men who attended Harvard stayed on campus. There were no commuters. 
And yes, you did have breaks, but they weren't the typical breaks we think of in today's time. Were students allowed any opportunity for personal recreation? Each day they were allowed two hours of it. But then after that personal recreation time was over, it w then it was back to studying. Now, we all would like to think in the 18th century that there were very, very few distractions. I'd like to believe so too, but I have to remind myself that that's, that wasn't always the case. So here's the next question. Did students at Harvard engage in inappropriate activities? I hate to say this, but yes. Gambling was a, was a problem, but then again, I think it's fair to say that gambling would have been a problem at any of the collegiate institutions that were around in the 18th century. Uh, William and Mary had its fair share of issues, but gambling itself is a um, vague uh, word. So Christopher Christian de Spigna mentioned that when it came to gambling at Harvard, many of the young boys would resort to cards and dice. And if you think gambling was a problem, how about whoredom? I'm not, I didn't say hoarding, I said whoredom. What do I mean by whoredom? Whoredom was often uh, going on at taverns. And many of the young boys would um, go so low as to enjoying the company of a loose woman. Okay, whoredom, prostitution. Prostitution is the oldest profession in the world. It's been, go it's been around since the beginning of time. Yes, this activity did go on. Well, what about Joseph Warren? Is he involved in any of that stuff? No. And they have records to prove that he was not involved in gambling or whoredom. That's not to say that young Joseph Warren was a perfect angel. He did have a few infractions on him, but they were more at the, at the lower level. So I think it's fair to say that in young Joseph Warren's time at Harvard, nobody was perfect, but there were those who did get demerits. And anybody know what a demerit is? A demerit is, what do you call it? It's, um, it's the opposite of receiving like a good news report. Demerits were uh, written up on your records as to um, violations that occurred. And it's fair to say that, you know, gambling would have been considered a demerit. Tardiness to class. So the bottom line is demerits uh, were handed out. Now, what I find to be very sad, and this happened to young Joseph Warren, and it happened right not long after he started, started out at Harvard in 1755, the date of October 22nd, 1755, is a day that's going to change young Joseph Warren's life forever. He lost his father, Joseph Warren Sr., who died at the age of 59. And, you know, 59 to us is considered still young, but of course in 1755, that probably was considered old age. Sadly, uh, the elder um, Joseph Warren did not get to die peacefully. His cause of death was due to losing his footing on a ladder, trying to gather apples from a tree on the family farm. I had mentioned from a previous podcast that uh, the Warren family 
was known for um, growing and harvesting apples on their farm, and their family was the first to um, grow an apple from previous generations earlier in the 1640s, and it still is the oldest apple today, the Warren Russet apple. But sadly, the elder Warren lost his footing on a ladder and, and fell to his death. I can't imagine having witnessed that happen to someone. But it, it was a very tragic way to go. And young Joseph Warren, sadly, was only 14 years old when his dad passed away. And it truly was considered to have been the first experience with, tra with tragic passing of a loved one in his um in his lifetime. And remember this too, folks. People, especially that of young Joseph Warren's age, around 14, were very prone to experiencing a lot of tragic uh, circumstances. Many children were lucky enough if they still had both parents alive, or let alone one parent alive by the time he or she made it to the age of 10. But it was very common for children to lose parents, or let alone just one, at a very early age. So I can't imagine being in young Joseph Warren's shoes and losing um, my father at the age of 14. Families of the deceased, believe it or not, would often grieve twice. I always thought you grieved just once. But in this day and in time, or should I say in the era of in the colonial era time, it was a different way of grieving. The first was a given, once for the loss of their loved one. Okay, so people are grieving, condolences that, hey, you know, this we must come together to remember uh, the loss of, of the elder Warren. But the second one was harder than the first. How so? Because it was from a financial aspect. When someone died, you often wondered, did that person leave debt behind that had not been paid? For the elder Warren, his death was a financial catastrophic was a financial catastrophic um, blow for the family because they had to pay for all the funeral expenses and the burial itself. So the elder Warren didn't leave any debt behind, but, but the funeral expenses and the burial itself had to be paid. So when we think of t in today's world of funerals and burials costing a lot of money, we need to keep in mind that even in colonial times, there were expenses with a funeral and a burial itself. I should point out that the burial of the elder Warren alone was 40 pounds, being the equivalent of 800 days pay for a typical journeyman laborer. So remember, folks, just because, say, you may not have been in the upper ranks of society, you still had to pay for stuff. That included a funeral. So the cost alone being 40 pounds being the equivalent of 800 days. So think about that, folks. There are 365 days in a year. So that's two and a half years worth of um, pay right there, for, in this case, for a typical journeyman laborer. So not everybody has access to 40 pounds right away. For someone who's in the 
in the upper class of society, being that elite one to two percent, 40 pounds really isn't that big of an issue. But for the typical middling family, that would take about two and a half to three years of hard-earned wage or hard-earned wages just to be able to pay because the typical middling family was making about 12, 10 to 12 pounds a year. So let's keep that in mind uh, when it comes to money. Not everybody had the same kind of access with regards to money, but in terms of how much it cost alone just to bury a loved one. I can understand now why many people in today's time today's modern 21st century, have often said that, hey, when our time comes, we would rather be cremated because it costs less than burying. There's nothing wrong with being buried, but it's just that cost factor. So now we have to ask ourselves this question. Given the loss of young Joseph Warren's father, I mean, this is a huge loss for him, Will he remain at Harvard even after his father's passing? The answer is yes. He received a lot of encouragement from his widowed mother and three younger brothers who wanted him to continue his education at Harvard. Did that mean, though, that that young Joseph Warren was still going to have to work? Did it mean that he would still have to that he would be exempt from having to do other things? No. He, he would still, on breaks from college, go back home and help his mother and brothers out with various tasks along the farm. That's a nice way of being able to repay something back. Hey, if, if, if your widowed mother and your siblings are sticking their necks out for you, you better fulfill your promise. During his, here's a bonus question for you all. During his time at Harvard, did Joseph Warren's social ties expand? Yes, it did. He met many scholars who would, who would become either Whigs or Loyalist um, leaders in the political realm. He also befriended a fellow named Samuel Otis, or Sam Otis, who was an ardent Whig supporter who would later become future quartermaster of the Continental Army and was the younger brother of James Otis. So basically, you're not there just at college to learn. You are there to also be able to establish connections, big and small, that will help you, not just while your, your time at college, but after. Now, what year does Joseph Warren graduate from Harvard? He graduates in 1759. And I should point this out to you all. Graduation from Harvard required students to pay for their degrees and for presents. Whom are they going to be given presents for? Their tutors as well as the school's president. And who is the president? Edward Holyoke. Think about it. You know, young Joseph Warren went before Edward Holyoke. And Edward Holyoke was so impressed with him and the same for anybody else, that, okay, if Edward Holyoke has stuck his neck out for you, the least you can do is repay him back by giving him a present as well as to the tutors who instructed you as well. Remember, folks, you may be at a high institution of learning, but even the members of the college 
given that there are fewer than 10 faculty members and a president, they're all watching you. They want you to succeed, but in order for you to succeed, you have to repay back some favors. And what do you know? You have to pick up the, pick up the tab on your end for um, not only paying for your degree, but for the um, other um, necessities that go with it, presents for the tutors. Remember, folks, this is a good example of not burning bridges because you never know when you might need a reference down the road. And Edward Holyoke has been there long enough to know that, hey, if we want to see young men succeed, young men have to do their part in and, and, uh, repaying us because we went out of our way for them. They need to do the same for us. So, um, when Joseph Warren graduates from Harvard in 1759, remember this, folks, all 13 colonies are still subjects under the British crown. But who is the king of England? It's none other than King George II. He is the grandfather to that future king who will become king of England a year later in 1760, King George III. The Seven Years' War is raging on, or what we refer to as the French and Indian War. England continues to assert her dominance over the world. Remember, England is the mightiest empire in the world. Not just the mightiest, she is the strongest imperial power in the world. Young Joseph Warren, believe it or not, before he graduated, was a member of Harvard's militia unit. This was his first exposure to formal military drill. These lessons would serve crucial or would be very crucial to him at a later time when tensions between the 13 colonies and England would no longer be relevant. So remember this. It's one thing to have graduated, but just because you, the year you graduated from Harvard, in this case 1759, it doesn't mean that five or six years down the road that everything is still going to be the same. And Joseph, young Joseph Warren is going to start seeing that here soon. Well, I think it's amazing that he still uh, was able to finish at Harvard, but I think young Joseph Warren uh, fulfilled a promise that his dad wanted. As a matter of fact, before his father died, his father had said in quotes something like this. He said this, I would rather a son of mine be dead versus being a coward. That kind of sounds harsh in a way, but remember this. The elder Warren wanted his sons to have a fulfilled life, but that also meant getting a good education and using their education to be, um, what do you call it, to be productive in the world, to take their talents and use them in a, in a setting to where people, others around them would benefit. If, he died, if, if any of his sons died a coward, it's because they squandered their talents. They, squandered, they would have squandered their opportunities. That's what the elder Warren feared more than anything else. In other words, he didn't want his sons to die leaving a bad legacy. 
So if you have the opportunity to do something, you better make the most of it, but don't squander it. Don't squander it and then die knowing that you left too much on the table. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Take care and enjoy the rest of your Sunday.